This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Jesse Puji, and today we're breaking down the New York Times. Since its founding in 1851, the New York Times has become known as the national newspaper of record through its focus on truth-seeking and quality journalism. To underline that status, it has won 132 Pulitzer Prizes, almost double its nearest competitor. However, the business behind the Times hasn't always been easy, and it has faced several existential threats over its history, most recent of which has come from the internet and digital mediums. To break down the New York Times, I'm joined by Morning Brew co-founder and host of Founders Journal and Imposters Podcast, Alex Lieberman. It's particularly interesting to hear a new media operator dissect the heritage and evolution of one of the most storied brands in his industry. Please enjoy this breakdown of the New York Times. All right. Welcome, Alex Lieberman, to Business Breakdowns. Thanks for having me. Pumped to do this. I'm excited because Alex is a friend. And beyond that, he's in this industry and in this business as an entrepreneur. And so today we're breaking down the New York Times. Let's get right into it. For those who don't know, what is the New York Times? And give us a sense for its scale and business. When I think of media and journalism, I think of the New York Times. The New York Times has earned that title over its 170-year history, right? When it was started in 1851 by Henry Jarvis Raymond and George Jones, it was started by actually one of these guys was the godfather of the Republican Party. So interesting how it's evolved over time. But the Times has always rested on this very singular goal of seeking truth and helping people understand the world through great journalism. And when I think as a digital media founder, when I look to inspiration from incumbents from time to time, there are actually few that I look to inspiration from, but the Times sits at the very top of that list. And the Times sits at the top of that list because I think they have proven that you can build a successful business off of great journalism, even though journalism has a very high cost of business because you have a lot of people that you need to hire to produce great work. And I think also the Times has proven an ability to work through the innovator's dilemma as the business model of media changes, as technology changes. It is possible for a large company to shift strategy over time. I'm excited to get into all of that stuff today. If you were just to take a snapshot of the business at this moment, give us a sense for how many readers, what kind of scale does it have? The New York Times has 10 million paid subscribers, which they had set a goal four years ago that they wanted to hit 10 million paid subscribers by 2025. They've already hit that goal. So the breakdown, the way that it looks is print is 800,000 of those subs. Obviously, that has shrunk significantly over the last decade and a half. Digital news subscriptions is 6 million of the 10 million. Cooking and games is 2 million. And then with the recent acquisition of The Athletic, that is 1.2 million. That's what got them over this 10 million hurdle. 
And their goal is to get to 15 million paid subscribers by 2027. Their hope is they can do that earlier, just like they did with the 10 million subscriber mark, which their goal was to get to by 2025. But the New York Times has such a huge halo. I guess, is there any sense for how big they are in terms of readership or people who focus on them and pay attention to them? Here's how I break it down. When I think of the New York Times, what is the New York Times' journalism? It is journalism that has largely been focused on the main pillars of world news, business news, and politics. Interestingly enough, which we'll get to in a little while, sports has always been this white space for the Times that they really didn't place emphasis on. In terms of how they view their market, the Times has said that they believe their addressable market is 135 million people. So it went from basically a, let's call it originally like a regional audience in the Northeast to a national audience to now, they basically consider their audience to be 135 million people who are the entire English speaking world. And the way they've basically viewed increasing that TAM is by increasing the breadth of their coverage in news. So covering more than just what happens in the US, but also entering these new niches, whether it's their games business, their cooking business, their shopping and commerce business, and now with the athletic sports. So you're talking about a business that believes they can get to at max 135 million people. But also if you add up the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and all of Gannett's 250 local papers, the New York Times has more subscribers than all those combined. So you're talking about a market leader that not only has way more subscribers than any of its competitors, but also because of the brand it's built, because of the subscriber base it's built, it's also been able to attract best-in-class talent. So the Times has thousands of journalists. It has 5% of all journalists in the United States. So it's had this amazing flywheel of creating great journalism that finds the truth, not just covering the news, but actually creating the news in a lot of cases doing that for an extended period of time that has built a great brand for itself that attracts subscribers. Those subscribers and that great content attracts great talent because what journalist wouldn't want to be with other great journalists and get in front of the largest possible audience, what's considered the newspaper of record for the US. And so it's been this amazing flywheel of great content, creates great brand, great brand, creates an amazing magnet for talent. And an amazing magnet for talent leads to creating more great content and the flywheel keeps spinning. Yeah, it's amazing. You were talking about it was started by someone prominent in the Republican Party. What is the origin story of the New York Times? How did it come to this position where it's the national de facto journalism source? As I mentioned, you had these two guys. You had Henry Jarvis Raymond, who was an American journalist, and he was a politician. So he was actually the chairman of the RNC, which is why some have called him the godfather of the Republican Party. You have George Jones, who was entirely a journalist. And they worked together at the New York Tribune, which was at the time the dominant newspaper of the Whig Party and then the Republican Party. And basically, if you rewind to when it was founded in 1851, a lot of the news sources at that time were considered to be yellow journalism. So very sensationalistic, questionable in terms of the facts and the reporting. And so the vision for these two founders was, let's actually create content that is not just good and attracts subscribers, but is truthful and helps people understand the world through a lens that 
isn't either fake or polarizing in either direction, which as we'll get to, I think is a really interesting question to ask about where does the New York Times sit today from the perception of just the American people. But that was the idea at the time was a bunch of content out there was yellow journalism and they wanted to just create pure play journalism that told the truth. And is that the reason they dominated or were there other things that happened in their story that led them to becoming as big as they did? I think the big reason is that the Times, they spent time digging into stories and truly creating news that wasn't created by other people throughout their history. You've seen the Times really create content and bring up stories that no other publications have created. They have been newsmakers, not just news coverers. And I would say that has been the biggest distinction. Even today, you look at many news organizations and they very much are just remixing and repurposing primary stories. The New York Times, I think, from 1851 until today, has truly put the impetus on themselves to like, how do we not repurpose the story? How do we actually create the story that everyone else repurposes? But the Times has had to reinvent itself so many times. Even in 1896, 45 years after founding, the New York Times was on the precipice of bankruptcy. There was a succession crisis who was taking over the publication. There was the rise of two very large sensationalistic papers that were gaining in prominence. And as we'll get to, the Sulzberger family is now five generations into running this business. But at the time, what ended up happening was Adolf Ox, he took over the brand and he was able to basically pull the times 45 years after founding out of bankruptcy by dropping the price from and this is going to sound crazy based on just the price of publication stay. It was three cents at the time for the newspaper. He dropped it to one cent. And basically, clearly, there was a lot of elasticity in people's willingness to pay because circulation increased from 25K to 75K. We'll talk about it. But basically, what ended up happening was ultimately Ox handed over the thrones to Arthur Sulzberger, who was his son in law. And that's what basically got the Sulzberger family into kind of this now five-generation control over the publication. Yeah, 66% price decrease. There you go. It's big time. Two pennies. <laughs> so let's talk about the family. As you mentioned, they came in through the father-in-law. How have they made the business distinctive? How is it different than most other businesses given its family run for five generations? What I would say is I think the perception by a lot of people, and by me at least, is... When you look at a lot of family-run businesses, generational businesses, I think you almost think of it as family-run businesses being like a movie series where the first is exceptional, the second is good, and then to keep the series going with the same quality is a really freaking hard endeavor and usually it doesn't pay off. I think that's how a lot of people think about family-led businesses is where the first generation crushes it because they have this will to succeed. The second generation does a good job, but then like more and more complacency, less and less need to succeed, ends up building up this debt of getting comfortable. And I think what's been really impressive about the Soulsburgers is they have been, I think in general, exceptional on keeping their finger on the pulse of where media is going and changing the business based on the changing technologies and business models in media. And so just to reference one example, I would say that A.G. Sulzberger, who is, I believe now the chairman of the Times, he was the publisher for a long time, 
he wrote an innovation report in 2014. So it was this 90-page report that has basically become the gold standard for how news organizations and media companies should be thinking about digital. And I think, again, about A.G. Sulzberger, fifth-generation family member. A.G. Sulzberger is 41 years old. He started as a journalist. He is the chairman now, and he is still the publisher. But yeah, he wrote this innovation report where basically he put together a team from the Times of a member from each part of the business. So he took someone from their product team, from their content org, from design, every part of the business. And they basically talked to hundreds of people within the Times. And then they talked to hundreds of people outside of the Times, like top media entrepreneurs. And what they wanted to figure out was where is media going? Effectively, to sum up this 90-page report written in 2014, the summary was the internet has totally changed the game of what it means to create content. It's lower distribution cost to zero. Power has shifted in media. And in order to build a relationship with an audience, no longer is it thinking about content is the only thing that matters. And if you create it and build it, they will come. The thought process changed to content, product, and growth need to all be treated with the same level of respect and they need to work hand in hand. And if they do not, you will fail as a media organization. And so obviously now the New York Times sits in a pretty amazing place with the growth of its subscription business, its recent acquisitions. But I would say the 2014 report was this really pivotal moment where basically they outlined their strategy for how to grow as a digital first organization. And they've executed extremely well on it. But I think A.G. Sulzberger was ahead of his time in laying out this strategy. And then the New York Times has just been exceptional in executing on it. Everyone knows it's almost like a joke at this point of like, oh, newspaper business is declining. I want to unpack a little bit of that transition that took place. Because I think most people talk about it openly, but I don't know. And most people probably don't know the numbers behind it. So can you talk through the decline of newspapers, shift to digital from a numbers perspective and through the vantage of the New York Times, just to give us a sense for what exactly happened? What I'm going to do is I'll lay out high level, what has this shift been and why has this shift been caused? And then we'll dig into like what the specific numbers were. So basically what has happened is for the longest time, I think to understand any business, you need to understand where you have the highest leverage or competitive advantage on the value chain. And basically the way that I think about it is originally, so you go all the way back, Originally, print publications were actually a very hard business. We think about it as newspapers were like the bread and butter for a long time. And then we saw the decline of print and the rise of digital. Print was actually a really difficult business. And the reason why is the print business was incredibly hard to monetize because of piracy. So for a long time, there were all these bootleg publications. They were basically just ripping off original journalism and they were reselling it at lower cost. And The reason that could be done is a lot of the content originally was like magazine-esque content that was evergreen in nature. So there was no shelf life of the content. And so what happened was the rise of the news organization made it way harder for piracy to exist, where newspapers ended up working well because there was a really short half-life. Let's say the half-life of a news cycle is 24 to 48 hours. So to be able to effectively rip off this content as a bootleg organization became increasingly difficult. And so what that did was it gave rise to the print news organization. And also for the first time, you had a 
large addressable market, which is effectively the entire nation. And so it created, let's call it like the first mass market for advertising to truly exist. Before that, there was not a mass market for advertising as a business model. And so Rupert Murdoch always refers to during the gold standard of newspapers, this amazing two-pronged business model. I believe even referred to it as like gold rivers, where you had advertising and subscription. So during like the gold age of print, the reason it was such a great business is effectively you could double dip where not only were you charging people for the print publication, but also you had this massive distribution that you can monetize via advertising. And then what ended up happening was the circulation of print businesses flattened in the second half of the 20th century, post-1950s. The first reaction that you saw to that before the rise of digital, because the internet wasn't a thing, was basically news organizations ask themselves, okay, we're seeing a slowing growth in our print circulation, which means maybe like news as kind of the hook into increasing circulation doesn't have the opportunity to grow like it once did. And so you saw this growth into other areas of content, lifestyle, entertainment. And the whole idea was, let's create more real estate to be able to monetize advertising, but also let's create a new way to hopefully re-steepen the growth of print circulation. Where did the New York Times peak non-digitally? The Times average weekday print circulation, it peaked in 1994 and it peaked at 1.18 million papers circulated per day. Just to give you a sense, again, we're at 800,000 subscribers on the print publication for the New York Times. And it's basically just been a steady decrease since 1994. And this isn't just the New York Times, this is emblematic of basically all print publications. And you can basically assume that the health of a news business or a traditional media business today is really just a question of how well did that business adapt to the death of print publication and the rise of digital. And I would say the biggest shift that the Times made was they shifted from being an advertising-driven business. So for the longest time, they thought about the biggest breadwinner for their business was advertising on print to ultimately thinking about their business as the Times is going to be a subscription-driven business. And actually, their viewpoint was maybe we're shorting ourselves a little bit by putting content behind a paywall, but they actually thought that they would have a robust advertising business by building up a subscription that was so compelling that people would learn to love them. And advertisers would be really excited about advertising with the Times because they had such a captivated audience. And that's kind of been their strategy. So as the internet came to bear, they did not do a nice job for the first X number of years of digital. Is that true? And if so, what happened and how did they then course correct? Basically, if you look at the timeline, 1996 is when NewYorkTimes.com went live. So that is when the digital website went live two years after the peak of their print circulation. And actually, originally, New York Times Digital, so their digital business, was going to IPO. It was going to spin off from the Times, and it was going to go public as a different business. And then the dot-com crash happened, and that ended. And I think for the longest time, it really wasn't an issue of the Times understanding that digital was going to be important and here to stay. I think it was the Times not realizing just how quickly the proliferation of the internet and then social platforms would truly have a massive impact on household brands that have built up their brands over hundreds of years. I think they believed it would be a slower transition. 
I think what really turned the tide for the times was this 2014 memo that was published called the Innovation Report led by A.G. Sulzberger. It was four years before he became the paper's publisher. What the report basically said is that the Times was being beat by upstart competitors like BuzzFeed, Huffington Post, and even some other traditional competitors like the Wall Street Journal. And so what the report focused on was specific changes that needed to be made for the Times to go from believing in a business that was ad-supported and free content-driven to investing in a digital-first subscription-driven business. And so some of the things they focused on were, one, the need to invest in audience development, basically all of the things that happen after you create content to actually get that in the hands of prospective or current readers. The second was actually building a structured data strategy around the business where People could actually find New York Times stories, images, or recipes in a way that was intuitive. The third was the newsroom was far too siloed from the rest of the business. And so the Times started really closely coupling product, engineering, analytics, technology, R&D with the content organization because that is what needed to be done in a more digital first business. The fourth was going from social media being an afterthought to social media being treated with as much respect and focus as any other part of the content business. The fifth was that before this report, the publishing schedule was totally out of sync with digital behaviors. So for example, most stories at the Times were published in evenings because that's when stories were written. That's when things basically were sent to print. But digital traffic was highest in the morning. And so they had to change their cadence of publishing stories based on when people were actually trafficking the internet and looking for stories from news organizations. And then the other thing that they started focusing on is they had old content, like literally 170 years worth of articles, photographs, recipes, puzzles, and other things. And so they started taking this content and repackaging and repurposing it in a digital way because some of this content wasn't timely and actually had an evergreenness to it. And so they figured out how to squeeze more juice out of their content in a digital environment. And so these are all the things that the Times started doing based on the innovation report in 2014 to adapt to a digital and subscription first business away from a print and free ad supported business. Such a crazy thing to see a huge business like that have that sort of a transition. I want to go a little deeper into like New York Times, PNL 101. You talked about these two golden rivers. Let's talk about the business as it stands today. I presume based on what you said, advertising and subscription are the two main source of revenue. Give us a sense for, I guess, how big that is. And then almost like walk through, what are the cost of sales to the business? What are the margins? And you're the CEO of New York Times tomorrow. What are the big levers you're thinking about for how you grow that business? The New York Times has not hit its all-time high revenue since 2000. So revenue for New York Times peaked in 2000 at $3.3 billion in revenue, as well as the Times is doing. So in 2021, revenue was 2.1 billion. This is still 30 to 40% down from the all-time high. And so to show the shift of the business, in 2000, when New York Times revenue peaked, of the $3.3 billion in revenue, 3.1 came from newspapers, 160 million came from broadcast, And 66.6 million came from digital. Look at the breakdown today. So 2021, New York Times did $2.1 billion in revenue. This is the first $2 billion revenue year since 2012. 
So we're talking about nine years later. Now, when in 2000, the revenue mix was 90 plus percent newspapers, today, 33% of the New York Times revenue comes from the digital news subscription business. And that grew 14% from 2020 to 2021. 28.7% comes from the print subscription business. 14.8% comes from the digital advertising business. And we'll talk about this in a minute, but I actually think that's a huge opportunity for them. 9.1% comes from the print ads business. So just doing some quick math, 37% comes from print and 48% comes from digital. We've seen this complete shift. And then another interesting thing you're seeing is 10% of the business's revenue last year came from this other bucket. And just to give a sense of other, other included content licensing. So licensing New York Times content to other partners, affiliate from Wirecutter, and we'll talk more about the Wirecutter acquisition, TV and film, which has become a pretty significant part of the business, not just for revenue driving, but also from a top of funnel brand perspective, work with Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime Video, et cetera, and then live events and retail. Obviously, you're seeing to paint kind of like a picture of where the business is now, still haven't gotten to where revenue is in 2000, largely a function of the complete demise of print circulation. Clearly, the New York Times, while it took them a while, understood the importance of becoming a digital subscription first business. We have seen that complete change from where it was majority print to now majority digital. And in terms of the margins of the business, the gross profit margin for New York Times in 2021 was 50%. And gross profit margins, just to give you a sense, is basically revenue minus cost of goods sold over revenue. So the cost of goods sold, majority for a business like New York Times, very dissimilarly from a software business, is the cost of people. The New York Times has 1,700 journalists. The New York Times pays its journalists on average 2x more than other news organizations. So that is a massive cost of doing business. And in terms of net margins, so after all costs, not just your cost of goods sold, in 2021 on revenue of $2.1 billion, the New York Times profited $268 million. So 13% net profit margin. Wow. The 2000 number, just one quick clarification. You said it was 3.1 billion. What portion of that was advertising versus subscription? In 2000, when the New York Times did $3.3 billion in revenue, that's when revenue peaked for the business. Of that 3.3 billion, 3.1 was newspapers. Advertising was 73% of print's revenue. The dirty little secret almost is that even though circulation, I mean, it's fallen off a little bit, I'm pretty shocked that of the 2 billion, you're saying 700 million of that is still print. But the real thing that imploded was the advertising part of the business. Exactly. Yeah. Advertising completely imploded. And if you were to look at a chart of New York Times' revenue mix over called the last 20 years since 2000, What you'd basically see if you look at the line of advertising versus the line of digital subscription, you see advertising starting really high, subscription in general starting really low. They cross at some point in the last eight years. And now digital subscription is the lion's share of the business. And digital advertising is picking up. 
while print advertising is stagnant and probably going to continue to decline with print circulation, they made this really hard strategic choice, which was putting their content behind the paywall, limiting the ability to monetize via advertising, right? Because the second you put content behind the paywall, you're lowering the surface area to monetize through ads. And they took that really strategic bet because their belief was, if we're creating the best journalism in the world, we are going to convince people to pay for our journalism over other new subscriptions. And over the long term, it's a better type of cash flow. And we'll be able to grow our advertising business because we have a really engaged audience. This is sort of a dumb question, but again, it went from 2 billion in 2000 by my math to 200 million today. What is that? Is that classifieds? What is the non-digital advertising business? Print advertising is literally just when I walk out of my building and I see people still getting the New York Times delivered to their apartment doors every day, it's the advertising in there. And my assumption, if this is like how other media orgs sell it, is that now it's sold as a total bundle. The sales org of New York Times is probably going out to some of the biggest brands in the world. And they are selling the online or digital advertising experience with the print advertising experience. But print advertising, if you were to look at like an itemized list of, let's say, a $500,000 ad package for just fidelity to give you a random example, you're just seeing a smaller and smaller portion that's getting allocated in a media package to ads that are placed on the second page of the New York Times' newspaper versus what shows up on their website. And my guess is a big part of the ad sales, the digital ad sale, is happening on the free portion of their website. Because just to make sure everyone understands, in 2011, the New York Times introduced the digital paywall. And what the New York Times is known for is the metered paywall. They kind of pioneered the metered paywall, which basically means that you get a certain number of articles free before you get hit with the subscription prompt that basically says you've hit your free article reads for the month, pay us if you want to see more. And so my guess is a large portion of the digital ads that are sold for New York Times business happening kind of like that free part of the experience with the site. The total audience for New York Times, total registered users is 100 million people. That's not paying, that's free and paid. Paid is 10 million subscribers. So we're talking about 10% of that audience, but across everything, not just their new subscription, their cooking, their games, the athletic, et cetera. My guess is they're monetizing that top of funnel far more than they're monetizing those 10 million subs who are looking at their stuff post paywall. And probably somewhere in the last 20 years, advertisers' willingness to pay for uh, impression and print dropped dramatically and the digital side hadn't caught up. You're the CEO. What are the big levers for how you grow the top line and therefore the bottom line of the business? I think that the big thing is expanding their non-news businesses, which we're already starting to see. So you see the expansion of their games and cooking business, which just hit a million paying subscribers in 2021. You see the expansion into sports with the acquisition of The Athletic. They paid $550 million for this business, eight and a half times revenue, which is definitely juicy for a media acquisition. This basically filled the void of they weren't covering a lot of local sports before because New York Times generally isn't a local news business. This acquisition opens them now to a market of people who are really interested in sports. So what that allows them to do, so just to talk for like the athletic acquisition for a second, it allows them to increase the overall pie. I talked about before that the New York Times views their TAM as 135 million English-speaking adults. An acquisition like this increases their coverage area, which hopefully gives them a better chance of getting a larger portion of that TAM. 
But also it hits on the second piece, which I was just talking about, which is increasing average revenue per user. So just something to realize that average revenue per user of New York Times' business today of a digital subscriber is way lower than what it was for the print business. To give you numbers for a second, digital average revenue per user is $15 to $17 per month. That is the revenue-driven per paying subscriber of the New York Times today. Print, when print was at its peak, average revenue per user was $60 per month. So we're talking about 4X. So the question is, is not only does the New York Times need to increase its digital business from 10 million to its next goal is 15 million by 2027, but it's also a question of how do we close that gap of a 4X difference between the digital average revenue per user and the print. And the way they think about doing that is one, being able to raise the cost of the New York Times bundle subscription. So they've tested this where in 2020, the New York Times raised their new subscription $2 a month. So nothing significant, but it was a test for them to basically see how elastic is demand for a new subscriber. And they saw minimal churn. That is a relatively good thing for them for the prospects of the business, if they think they can just increase the cost of their existing business. But what also is going to increase their average revenue per user is as they add more and more offerings, not only are they going to be able to increase the price of the bundle because you're getting more things, but also the idea is with some of their highest value subscribers, they're going to be able to upsell them on other subscriptions outside of, say, just the pure new subscription. And what I mean by that is the New York Times outside of The Athletic has 8.8 million subscribers. There are 7.6 million unique paying people, which means there's clearly overlap. People are willing to pay for more subscriptions. And so I think where they see opportunity, and I think they're going to continue to place emphasis, is kind of like an 80-20 rule. How are they going to be able to continue to further monetize the top 20% of their subscribers who are willing to pay for more than one digital product? For games, for example, is especially attractive when in games is a very high margin business to your point earlier. You've mentioned the gaming. Let's talk a little bit about Wirecutter. They bought that business, how that plays into this growth strategy. And then I actually want to go back and talk about the core business a little bit more. Interestingly enough, if you look at the history of the times, <laughs> they've actually been pretty bad at acquisitions. The acquisition of The Athletic, as I mentioned, they bought for $550 million in just cash off their balance sheet. That's the second largest acquisition they've ever done. The largest was they bought the Boston Globe in 1993 for $1.1 billion. They ended up selling the Boston Globe in 2013, 20 years later, for $70 million. They bought About.com in 2005 for $410 million. They sold it in 2012, so seven years later, for $300 million. They took a right off on that also. They sold it to IAC, Barry Diller's company. I would say the wire cutter acquisition is the best acquisition in recent history for the Times. They bought the business for $30 million. The business is doing $50 million in annual revenue. And it's also just opened up a new line of business for them, meaning affiliate revenue, the opportunity for commerce sales, launch of physical products. So this isn't to say that we should be wary of the Times' ability to do M&A because we're talking about acquisitions that were done 17 years and more than 20 years ago. But it is interesting to just see the track record of a 170-year-old business in doing M&A and how inorganic growth has done for them. We talk about gaming, wire cutter. 
is there another category or are there other additional boxes they're missing that, again, if you were the CEO, you'd be buying those types of businesses? Yeah. So I think sports was a huge one for them because I really think that it was synergistic for both businesses. One could argue that the price was kind of stupid, that $550 million in X 2021 revenue was really high from what I've seen. Media businesses generally trade at anywhere between one to four X revenue. That said, it is a subscription driven business. And so you're going to see a higher multiple, but eight and a half X seems kind of crazy. But I think the benefit of what you get with the athletic is a fewfold. One of the biggest issues that you've had with the athletic is churn. The athletic has had a big churn problem because what they've found is that since the athletic subscriber subscribes for specific coverage around a specific team that they love, when that team is not being covered because it's the off season or because there's a change in writers in the organization, people will cut their subscriptions really quickly. And so the idea here is that if all of a sudden you can bundle the athletic with the New York Times, where someone is getting this steady drip of other content, non-sports content, whether it's related to news, games, cooking, et cetera, in off seasons or in points where there's lower coverage around a specific team, the rest of the bundle can retain subscribers. So I think that's a big pitch for them. The other part is just the increased penetration of total TAM. People who wanted to get sports coverage before, and they were thinking about, should I subscribe to the Times, even though the Times doesn't do anything around sports and that's important for me, all of a sudden, this becomes part of their value prop. When I think about opportunities for the business, I think M&A will continue to be there. And specifically, where I see opportunity for the Times is in really valuable, passionate niches. If we think about what ties together the athletic, wire cutter, cooking, and games, you have passionate groups of people. People who are willing to pay for a specific sports team are fanatical about that sports team. People who are really into cooking and finding new recipes are really into cooking. People who are into crosswords, people do the New York Times crossword, they do it every day. You know, this is obviously part of our thesis at Morning Brew, which is like in the abundance that is the internet, where there's infinite content and people have very specific interests, the more that you can be an aggregator of niches rather than being a generalist and being all things to all people, we will double down on niches all day long. And so when I think about where's their opportunity, either through M&A or new products created by the times, it is focused on passionate niches, passionate large niches, because sports, really passionate audience, but also a really large audience. Crosswords and games, really passionate audience, but really large audience. And so I think if they can find more niches that have a large TAM, but like the emotional tie to that niche is high, I think that's a winning strategy. And something outside of just pure M&A, it can happen within M&A, but it also can be just through hires, is focusing more on individual personalities and brand. This is where I think the whole world is going, is the move from institutional and brand resonance to individual and creator-based resonance. And I think something that the Times really hasn't capitalized on is truly making some of its top journalists and other creators at kind of the center of the brand. Like thinking of New York Times in this hub and spoke model, where the Times brand is the hub, its spokes are individuals that people have really deep resonance with, monetizing those individuals in really clever ways and making sure everyone who follows these individuals also know that these individuals are part of a greater whole that is the New York Times. 
I think there's an amazing opportunity to do that. And I think there's an opportunity to do that specifically starting like with their newsletter business. They have 70 newsletters. They have 28 million subscribers, 17 million of which are just on their daily newsletter, The Morning. Very convenient title, not commenting on that. (laughs) But I think the ability to start with newsletters is a great way to build individual personal brand resonance is something they should double down on. Who better to do it, right? I mean, they have that scale, they have that leverage because they can offer something to a creator that if they called me or they called you and they said, you're a little bit unique as a morning brew, but if they called me and they said, hey, Jesse, you're doing all this Twitter stuff. Why don't we get you in the center of a column about bootstrapping? Whatever it is, you, you could just imagine it would be this massive thing. To me, they should dog food it themselves and then go out to other people, right? Totally, yeah. Andrew Ross Sorkin, Maggie Haberman, they have these massive names who have massive social presences. They should find ways to work with them in which these journalists who have massive audiences are incentivized to keep building audience around their individual brand. One thing you mentioned earlier, you didn't mention again this time was like TV. If I zoom out big time for a second, I say, you know, this business is kind of like a Netflix. You've spent a lot of money on content and then your operating leverage comes through just getting more and more subs. And yet Netflix has 100 million subs. They can raise price. No one cares. And this business still seems like it's relatively speaking, scrounging for subs. What's behind that? And then like, if you're again, you're in the New York Times, what are you doing to solve for that? I think it's a great question. I think if you were to ask me, (laughs) which business has a larger TAM, I would say Netflix without a doubt. If you were to ask me, do people have a higher willingness to pay for entertainment or news? I would say entertainment. I want to make clear that I think Netflix, if you're comparing Netflix and the New York Times, I don't view the New York Times ever being as valuable a business as Netflix, very simply. But I think the biggest thing that the Times is going to have an issue with is I don't see a path to 100 million subscribers. I see a path to 25 million subscribers. We haven't talked about this yet, but I think the biggest hindrance to that path is the fact that the way that the Times is perceived by the public today in terms of going back to their goal of seeking truth, not taking sides, and helping people understand the world through great journalism. I think a lot of society perceives the New York Times as being very one-sided in the way they cover, which also is very ironic given not only their original goal, but also that they were started by the chairman of the RNC. And so I think to bring it back to your question, I don't see the same opportunity for the Times in growing their digital subscription business as I do see for Netflix. But also at the same time, Netflix is spending multiples more money for the content for people to consume entertainment. It is a higher risk, higher reward business from a cash flow perspective. And the New York Times itself, like the core business, we talked about the ways they extend the business. The core readership, and you start talking about their left-leaning, how would you grow that business? How does a business that generates all this content, how do they get more subscribers? What's the way that they drive growth in a business like this? The short answer is more great journalism where they're creating news that people can't find anywhere else. For different businesses, there's different hooks. So the hook for, let's say, Netflix's business is amazing entertainment that is binge-worthy. For New York Times, it is content you can't find anywhere else that has a time hook, so people feel a level of urgency to consume it today. And how do world events affect? Like, There's this whole Trump effect on the media world. If you're the New York Times, you lean into those kinds of things? I think you have to. That, I think, was both one of the greatest opportunities and potentially one of the biggest headwinds for the New York Times and other media organizations over the next five years. Is right, You went from an election cycle 
with Trump that was irrespective of your side, an election cycle and a president who had the most hype, polarization, and desire to consume content around them. In the middle of COVID, by the way. Yeah. And then you flow into COVID, a a world pandemic where there's more fear and uncertainty than ever before. When there's fear and uncertainty, people look for answers. They look for trusted sources. And so the question is now that we're in, I don't want to say less exciting is not the right word, but a less newsy president, as well as being in a place with COVID where there's far more information, it could actually end up being just like a structural change for the next five to 10 years, is how do you not grasp for sensationalistic journalism, the exact thing that they were against? And also, how do you not continue to create content through, let's say, at least what's perceived by society as a left-leaning lens? Since if that is the majority, how they perceive the majority of their readership today, and their goal is to increase average revenue per user of their existing subscribers in addition to increasing their audience, how do you create a more balanced level of journalism that gives them the possibility of hitting that 135 million person TAM? Because out of that 135 million people, obviously 135 million people are not left-leaning. So how do you cater more to those people without isolating the very people that are the heart of the subscriber base today? And I think this sits at the very core of not just the New York Times, but an amazing challenge in media that exists for every organization. I mean, the incentive structure just seems, to your point, or any media organization, New York Times, the incentive structure is one that attracts you. You need subscribers. You need people to read. In this case, you go left-leaning. In another case, if you're Breitbart, you go right. We'll get to the hearts of, this is not a political or society show necessarily, but like it gets to the heart of this divisiveness thing because there's an incentive of media to go in that direction. Totally. I'll even use an example like Barry Weiss. Barry Weiss was, let's call it, one of the most publicly known journalists at the Wall Street Journal and then the New York Times. And she wrote this very public resignation letter about the Times because of this feeling of there not being a true search for the truth, there being more bias and polarization to their content, the feeling that as a journalist, it's become a very understood thing, what stories are going to get greenlit versus redlit based on the political leaning of that content. And so she left. She left. She started her own Substack. It's crushing it for her. And so if I'm the Times, I'm trying to find a way going back into like the creator-driven thing. How can I find these amazing journalists that instead of political lean, they have great point of view. They have specific point of view. So while you can achieve balance, people look for point of view. And I think for the longest time, point of view has come in the form of it has to be polarization or political lean. But I think there's other ways to achieve point of view through insights, smart takes that actually isn't tied to politics. And so I think that's a really nuanced transition, but it can be achieved by latching onto the right people and building brands around them. That's just such a fascinating time in business for what's going on in the world right now. Let's zoom out and look forward a little bit. So you've mentioned this goal by 2027 to 15 million subscribers. If we get to that place and they've blown through that goal, the 20 plus million, what happened in their business? What were both, I guess, the specific things that they might have done and the macro factors that led to that? I mean, I would say there are a few things. I think one, they were able to really maximize the value of their acquisitions, namely Wirecutter, The Athletic, and Wordle, which Wordle is not a big acquisition, but I actually think it's a really smart top of funnel 
for their crosswords and games business. I think second, they truly figured out how to maximize the surface area of their digital ads business. If you look at comparisons to whether it's iHeart on the podcast side, whether it's Morning Brew on the email newsletter side, there is significant opportunity for them to increase the value of their advertising business, assuming no growth. Like I just don't think they're squeezing all of the juice out of the lemon. So the first is maximizing the value of their acquisitions. The second is increasing their digital advertising business per user. And I would say the third is them finding the ability to lean into higher average revenue per user or poop products. And so what I mean by that is this is something we're focusing a lot on at Morning Brew, lower funnel products that help you monetize your users significantly better that can then be reinvested into the business. Things like commerce. New York Times cooking has become a very lucrative business with their recipes and their cooking app. Wirecutter has become a very lucrative business with affiliates. At some point, I'm asking myself, why am I not actually creating products that I can scale into full-on businesses since I have such valuable data around the types of things that people cook, the types of products that people buy, in the same way Morning Brew is looking to launch our own products or we're launching educational courses, well, they have top-tier journalists who are experts in their fields. They have passionate niches that they have first-party data on. I think there's a ton of opportunity for lower funnel paid products to sell in to their existing subscribers. So when we look, like we said, say by 2027, they've hit their 15 million goal. I think it is the combination of them better leveraging their acquisitions like The Athletic and growing their audience or their subscriber base from over a million, which is where The Athletic is now, to significantly more. I also think it's the ability for them to better monetize their existing subscribers and to reinvest that into the business and put into things like more journalists or paid marketing. Super helpful. And what about the opposite? So they end up missing the goal or even worse, going backwards. What happened to the business? What mistakes might they have made? And what are the threats out there that could have gotten them? Let me start with what I don't think they can control, but we have to be hopeful that it doesn't have a structural impact on their business, which we talked about, which is news cycle. You can't control the news cycle. And the news cycle has been incredibly favorable for every news organization over the last six to eight years. There's no guarantee. And I would actually say it's not likely for that to look like that over the next six to eight years. And so the question becomes, in a world where news is, let's just say it how it is, less interesting, what happens to the growth of their subscription business? I'm sure it's something they're thinking about, which is why if I'm them to try to protect myself from that risk, it's going all in on news adjacent things, right? It's going all in on crosswording games. It's going all in on cooking. It's going in on those things where you control the story you create. I would say they can't control that potential headwind, but they can control how they react to it. The thing they can control is what we've talked about is the perceived political lean of the times. New York Times is the only trusted news source for one out of four political segments from far left, moderate left, moderate right, far right. They're the only trusted news source for far left. The other three, they're not the most trusted news source. The question becomes, I think there's a very good argument to say they're not going to be able to continue to carve out a good percentage of that 135 million person audience in the English speaking consumer, if that's the continued perception of people. I think they're going to run into more and more issues of political lean over the next few years, and they're going to have to make a very big decision around, are they going to 
endure short-term pain for long-term gain of being considered a balanced news organization again. And then I would say the third is a ton of competition. To me, the biggest risk is political lean. Of all the things, I think perceived bias is the largest risk to their business. Perceived bias, which they can control, and like news flow. Another one is tons of competition. So with the barriers to entry in media being lower than ever before, both for creators via Substack to go on their own and people resonating with people, but then for other news organizations to launch. Capital is endless today. And we've seen a lot of former journalists launch businesses, whether it's Axios, whether it's Ben Smith, who just left the Times to launch a new organization that we don't know much about yet. Competition is very real. I actually personally don't view this as a big weakness because I just think from going back to great content drives great brand, great brand drives high talent density of great journalists. I don't think competition is going to significantly eat away at the Times. And I actually think it actually creates interest in the Times because now that there's more news and content than ever before. And then the final is switching costs. There are very low switching costs in a media business. You're paying a couple hundred dollars a year for the digital news subscription, or you're paying $40 a year for their game subscription. There's nothing that's really hooked you in. It's not like you're a business that's signed a huge license with Salesforce, all of your data around your customers in there, and it's really, really annoying to switch to another business. And so I would say the biggest thing in my mind is news cycle risk and political lean and bias risk. The Substack thing, just to spend one second on that, is that not a massive, like if your best talent is always going direct and kind of going around, is that not a super scary threat or a risk to them? I think it is a risk, but I think what you're finding a lot of Substackers are realizing is that in theory, it is great to go run your own subscription and create your own content. And it can actually be lucrative for the top journalists, of which a lot of New York Times are. But the issue is, is there's so much stuff that is created by being on your own. You have to recreate all of the infrastructure and help that a news organization provides you. Everything from editing help to website help, operational help, HR help, marketing help. like It's all these things. And so I think a very small minority of people truly are willing to endure that for a long period of time. There are very few creators that are entrepreneurs and business people. What I will say is I do think it's going to continue to put pressure on the times to pay their people exceptionally well, and also give individuals the ability to build up their brands to try to protect themselves from people leaving. Last few questions we ask everyone on the show... We'll take them one at a time, but the three are lessons for builders, lessons for investors, and then where to go for further study if you're interested in learning more about the New York Times. So what's the big one lesson for builders, entrepreneurs, and executives out there? I think the big lesson for builders is it takes a ton of time to build a great brand. It takes very little time to shatter your brand. And I think we live in this age of the hyper acceleration of everything that is created expectations from entrepreneurs and builders that I'm going to build a massive business that gets to a billion dollar valuation in a few years. People are going to love that brand and will ride into the sunset. I think you saw that with a lot of DTC brands where they're like, oh, let me just hire Red Antler and let me spend a ton on paid acquisition. And all of a sudden, I'm going to be the most revered brand in the world. And I just think there is something to be said for consistent grinding away at your mission for a century, maybe in the age of the internet and digital, it doesn't take a century, but it takes a hell of a lot longer than three or four years. And so I think the New York Times is just a great example 
of being ruthless about your mission for a long period of time and how you can't replicate that even in the age of the internet. What about for investors? What are lessons the New York Times story? I think from an investor's perspective, truly appreciating how critically management is thinking about their business, getting a sense of if they're getting comfortable or if they're remaining critical. And I think the Sulzberger family, specifically AG, has just shown an amazing ability to understand where the puck is going and to make really hard decisions in the short term that may go against the ethos and the culture of the business in order to position yourself for the next 10 to 20 years of media. I think it sounds very easy and clean. Oh yeah, print's declining. We're going to focus on digital subscriptions and the subscription business instead of advertising. But it literally forced them to change the entire way they run their business. They went from a newsroom-driven business where like newsroom sat on a pedestal above everything else to like newsroom, product, audience development and growth are all equals within the company. And actually every journalist needs to understand those two other things. And just think about the amount of not just organizational change, but training that has to happen with your people. All of a sudden, a journalist to know how to code or to understand audience development and digital marketing, it requires really costly and important short-term decisions. And so I would say like I have so much respect for what this family business of sorts has done. I think a lot of investors spend time digging into the numbers, which is important, but not enough time digging into how critically the management team is thinking about the future of their industry and how they're actually executing on their strategy to be ahead of the curve. Last question, where would you tell people to go if they want to learn more about the New York Times? There are great reporters who do great analysis around the New York Times. So like Peter Kafka from Vox provides a really good balanced view on the Times anytime there's big news that happens. And then also, they're not journalists, but Rich Greenfield and his whole research team, he's at Lightshed. The Lightshed team does great research around all media businesses, both digital media and traditional, and they always have great views on the future of the Times. Awesome. Well, Alex, thanks so much for this. This is a really fascinating conversation that went well beyond the New York Times in many ways. I loved it, man. Thanks so much for having me. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out jointcolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 